Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and I am so thrilled to see on my computer screen, you can't see her on yours, but I can see her on mine, uh, Maya C. Popa. Uh, Maya is um, a poet and a critic and a teacher and scholar. She's all of these things. She's somebody um, I've been really looking forward to having on the podcast. And um, she, um, all on her own, chose a poem that I I was hoping somebody would choose because I just love um, hearing it. I love thinking about it. Um, I haven't really had a chance to talk about it. It occurs to me, even as I say that, that for some reason, I don't think this is a poem I've taught, um, which is maybe an an odd thing given how much I love it. But anyway, I won't hold you in suspense any longer. The poem is Spring and Fall um, by the, the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, and it is, um, it is a poem as is always the case for us. It is a poem to which you will find a link in the episode notes. So, um, I recommend, um, well, for those of you who want to be looking at a text as we talk, you'll be able to find it there. Um, and you'll be able to find, uh, more information, um, to go with the, um, the information you find in the episode notes, you'll find more information in the newsletter that will come out with this episode. Um, but before we get to, um, the poem and Hopkins, let me tell you more about our guest today. Um, as I say, Maya C. Popa is a poet. She is the author of two full-length collections of poetry. Um, Her first, uh, American Faith, came out in 2019. And then more recently, uh, Maya's second book came out. The book is wonderful. I mean, the first is wonderful too, but the second I have been spending time with recently um, and I'm really loving. Her second full-length book um, is called Wound is the Origin of Wonder, and that came out in 2022 from Norton. Um, and I'll, I'll say a few words more about that book and about the kind of poet that Maya is in a moment, but let me tell you first about some of the other wonderful things she does. Maya is the poetry reviews editor at Publishers Weekly, which is, um, I would imagine a, a largely thankless, but hugely important job. Um, she's really um, a steward of poetry, uh, of the poetry publishing world in this way. So um, um, doing doing wonderful work, has been doing wonderful work at Publishers Weekly for a while. Um, she's also a teacher. She teaches creative writing um, at the Nightingale Bamford School in New York and also at um, NYU. Um, where I think she has a degree from. Is that right, Maya? Yeah. Um, Maya is um, also, like me, has entered the Substack world, but is doing it better than I do, I think. She's um, she's doing it for real. Um, she's got a Substack called Poetry Today, where she, um, she shares poems, she shares thoughts about poems, she shares um, her, some of her research there. And her research... Um, is on the topic of wonder in poetry. Um, Maya just earned a PhD from Goldsmiths, the University of London, on that topic, which is a wonderful topic. It's a topic that's clearly present in her poetry, um, as well as her critical and scholarly work. Um, and, um, And maybe we'll have occasion over the course of this conversation to talk about the role that wonder plays in a poem like, like the one that we're talking about today. It's just such a beautiful poem, but okay. Let me let me um, let me uh, quote a bit of Maya to her, and hope she doesn't die of embarrassment um, in the process. So, I, I was reading an interview that she gave recently in McSweeney's. Um, I think on the occasion of the publication of this new book of poems, and um, in that interview, she said the following quote. Delivering wonder alive requires a very finely tuned balance between knowing and not knowing, Um, end quote. I think that very finely tuned balance is something that is like everywhere on display in Maya's work. Um, It's there in the poetry where, um, where it's clear reading her work that this is a poet who knows a great deal. This is a poet who has um, also trained as a scholar 
she has um, in her mind and in her lived experience a, a whole kind of library of um, texts, um, a series of poetic models that she's drawing from, that she's learned from. But um, you you don't feel the weight of that um, as a reader of her work. That is, she handles that um, learning with a beautifully light touch, um, with a kind of um, simplicity and um, modesty that unlocks, um, I think, what she would call the experience of wonder as um, a reader of her poems. So, you know, like there was one poem in her book that has really been um, pressing itself on me in a way um, of late. The poem is called The Present Speaks of Past Pain. And um, I'll link to that poem and I'll link to, I mean, in addition to linking to her books, I'll, um, I'll see if I can provide a link to that poem or some other um, particular poems from Maya's book um, in the text that goes out with the episode. That poem is like many of the poems in the book, I guess, in that it's, among other things, interested in or ex- or in the, it's exploring, in a way, the experience of things like grief and um, loss and uh, pain, um, but, but also um, is looking with open eyes at the world that it's in. Um, and here's what it sees. Here's, here are two lines from Maya's poem that have, that have uh, just astounded me. The sky filled with stars that had been there already. So simply said, um, there's, there's nothing um, ornate or fussy about that language. Um, it's a simple statement of fact, um, but it's a fact that hits you like a revelation because it's pointing out something that's sort of true about the world. Um, as, I, as I say this now, I, I look out the, the window to the sky and I see that the sky is blue. I don't see any stars. I don't even see the one star that I might see during the day, the sun. Um, uh, but they're all there. And, um, and Maya's poem has helped me look at the sky in a different way, you know, the, at, the, at the blue sky in a different way, knowing that um, night is coming and that something else is, is waiting to be revealed to me. Um, so that's, that's a wonderful thing that poetry can do. And it's a thing that, that Maya's poetry does do and that Maya's work with poetry, not just her own poetry, but with poetry in general, um, is always working towards. And it's, it's one of the reasons why I so appreciate her presence um, in the world, in the poetry world, in my, um, and in my life. Um, Maya's someone I'm, I'm happy to begin um, to be counting as a friend. Um, Maya C. Popo, welcome to Close Readings. Tell me how you're doing today. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, that's a disarmingly generous introduction. So I'm, I'm sort of speechless, but grateful. I'm well. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I think I hear a, I th- I hear a siren in the background. Uh, yes, with I, you. Um, I thought it would be interesting to have some acoustic urgency. So yeah. <laughs> siren come in just as I started speaking. I hope that's fine. No, it's totally fine. Um, Maya's um, Maya's um, phoning into this um, podcast from New York City, and you can hear it there. And- that that's where I am exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Maya, tell me um, just before we dive um, into the poem, um, tell me, you know, when I when you and I chatted um, a while back about you coming on the podcast. Um, I, I've become curious in thinking because it, it strikes me that it's sort of a funny thing to ask someone. Okay, you're a person, you know, whoever the guest is. One thing you all have in common is you love poetry, and you mm-hmm. and you have um, poems coming out of your ears, and so on. Um, and th- and then I ask you to choose one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I've and I've noticed I've been noticing that that uh, charge that um, you know assignment, for lack of a better word. Uh, has raised interesting questions for for various guests on the podcast, and I wonder uh, what, if any, questions it raised for you, or what the experience was like of of choosing this poem. Um, well, I sort of knew right away I wanted to do this poem. Though I perhaps may have suggested something like three to you that that were all in the sort of top five. But 
Um, mm-hmm. The thought of, you know, being a vehicle for another reader who may not be familiar with this poet or poem mm-hmm. um, to experience something like what I first experienced when I read it in college um, and that set me sort mm. of deeply into love with Hopkins um, to the degree that I then ended up doing my MA at Oxford on his work. I mean, I thought this poem was so extraordinary and the way that it moves and the way that its insights are revealed to itself. Um, and yeah. then again in the reader's mind as the reader kind of parses through it um, is amazing. So I think, again, I think I wonder if for many of us asked to choose a poem, there isn't kind of a secret pleasure in knowing that this might be the first time that someone hears it and they get to hear it through your voice, reading it yeah. and talking about it. And so um, it's kind of thrilling to think that that might be the case. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's a lovely and fascinating answer. I want, I'm, and it makes me curious, like, um, can you remember in a way the, the actual circumstances of your, your first reading? You said it was in college. Like, yes. can you remember the class? Can you remember the book? It would have been in major English texts at Barnard. Um, and we, I had a professor called Peggy Ellsberg, and she was, um, you know, one of these Hopkins fanatics. And so she would also sort of sprinkle wonderfully descriptive anecdotes and eccentric uh-huh. anecdotes about Hopkins um, between poems. And so I think in that way, I fell as much in love with the poetry as with Hopkins as a character. Um, right. And then, you know, I loved how he bent English syntax to his will. I mean, that was evident from yeah. the moment you start reading it. Your mouth is doing strange things that your brain <laughs> has to kind of catch up with. Um, verbs are turning into nouns. Um, there's yeah. you know, constant alliteration and assonance and repetition and jammed stresses. And when you read, um, you know, the version I have, I think, has removed the extra linguistic pitches, but, you know, you'll read. Um, a Hopkins poem in in manuscript form and see all of these strange accents over the vowels so that the reader would know how to accent what what's being read so it felt very much like English and not English and it felt like he was sort of Mm. um there was something kind of not of this world about his writing and about him and Mm. so I think you know like many poets who are interested in the numinous and the mystical there's a lot of that in Hopkins Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, obviously, once we get started with the poem, we'll have plenty of occasion to talk about what seems strange um, about it, even as in other ways, it feels like, I mean, it's a poem that is, among other things, at least primarily, or in its way of describing itself, addressed to a child. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you might think that a poem that was addressed to a child would be um, not strange, but you know, familiar and, um, and, and sort of comforting or, um, easy. Um, I don't know that this poem is not those things, but it has a strange relation to them in a way. Um, yeah. So we'll have, we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance, um, to, to think about all of that. So for people who don't know anything of, you know, who didn't have Maya's lovely experience of reading Hopkins in college, um, with a great teacher or, um, or at all, um, maybe just worth saying a couple of things. So this is an English poet who was born in 1844 and, and died in 1889. Um, so, um, not as long a life as he was owed. Um, the poem spring and fall was written, um, in the, um, in the fall or the early fall, I think of 1880. So, um, you know, Hopkins would have been in his mid thirties at that point. And he, um, and I guess maybe worth saying too, about his sort of career as a poet, though he's a much loved poet now and, and widely read. And some of his poems, including this one are, um, real classics, you know, heavily anthologized and frequently taught poems and that kind of thing. Um, he seems to me also like a like a a man who was uncertain of his um, success in the publishing world of the day, and and um, and and uh, you know not um, and and perhaps frustrated by a kind of um, reception that wasn't 
suiting his ambitions in some ways. So um, yeah, interesting to, I guess, keep those kinds of things in mind. Maya, did you, I, we're going to turn to the poem in a minute, but it looked like maybe there was something you wanted to say before we got there. I was there. going to say that it, in some ways, what's most interesting to me is that his relationship to the endeavor of publishing or writing at all was so conflicted. Um, he became mm. a Jesuit, he was a Jesuit priest and had a very hard time reconciling his appetite for writing and for kind of distributing any of the work with um, that vocation. He actually burned, I mean, we all, we have a very yeah. small number of poems. He burned a lot of his work. And um, in a letter to his friend Bridges, at one point he says, you know, um, the, the only thing that truly inspires him, he can't make capital. I mean, he says something like, I cannot make capital of my inspiration. So huh. he really truly felt that, there was something um, unpious in moments about hmm. his um, appetite for the writing. And then in other, we know he suffered with severe depression. In other moments, his sort of relationship to the endeavor of writing and to the practice is slightly more fluid and natural and less mm. um, sort of harrowing. But it, at other points, he feels, one would say, borderline guilt for sort of being involved in this at yeah. all. Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's a really fascinating um, portrait. Um, you've just given us an insight into his attitudes towards publishing and writing that you've just given us an at risk, I guess, of like... Um, psychoanalyzing our poet before yeah. we've uh, before we've before <laughs> we've started you know reading his poem I, I guess one thing I would just note is you know you 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 made reference earlier to all of the kind of little um I don't know what to call them exactly diacritical marks he yeah, makes uh, over his yeah, yeah. over certain syllables and so on and um and if you know something about Hopkins you may have heard of his um theory of or practice of something called sprung rhythm um, I think we'll have perhaps some occasion to talk about what rhythm looks like in this poem and not worry over much about defining the term because it seemed to be a term that he defined differently at different points in, in his career. But the thing I wanted to say was just that there, there's an odd kind of, um, it's almost like there's an, a, a desire to control the readerly experience it, to manage it in a way yeah, that uh, you don't often, um, I mean, you know, I guess there are some poets who are like that, you know, who want the reader to read the poem the right, you know, the right way with the right in, um, stresses in the right places and and so forth. Um, but I wonder, you know, sort of putting that impulse alongside the the kind of misgivings that you've just described him having about the whole endeavor um you know you on the one hand you want to say oh those things seem very different and on the other maybe they're like two sides of the same coin or something yeah and the deeper irony here is that all of this sprung rhythm is meant to imitate the natural tones of right. speech and you're like really at the end of the day all of these these accents are in service of naturalness. Right. Natural speech. So um, I think what we're getting at is the, the sort of complicated figure Hopkins was. And I think, again, part of why I so fell in love with it is that, you know, it's interesting when five sentences into discussing a poet, you're already bringing up three terms that either he coined or he's known for, or uh, yeah, you know, right. these sort of idiosyncrasies that feel and make him so alive, you know, some 150 years later, I think that that's sort of exciting. Um, but yes, yeah, to your point, it's a prism that, that that's hard to reconcile in moments. Yeah. Okay. But so let's, it's, I think high time that we put some meat on the bone here and, <laughs> and give, you know, give people, um, a chance to experience this poem. And I love what you said earlier about how part of the thrill of making the choice was the idea that for some people, they would hear the poem, they would hear it for the first time, and they would hear it in Maya's voice. Right. Uh, I recognized after that it sounded as though, it, you know, it's a sort of solipsistic or self-involved approach. Hey. But rather it's that I'm, I'm, hello, everyone who's listening. I'm very, very privileged to be able to read this poem to you. I hope I do it justice. It is amazing. Yeah. And I hope it's your first yeah. time you enjoy it. It, it reminds me of when I, I mean, don't, you don't need to apologize for solipsism. This is after all a poetry podcast, right? So, but um, 
you know, it reminds me of, I did, I, I've done a, a very little amateurish, but like as a student I tried my hand at translating sometimes. Right. And I remember part of the wonder of that experience being like, these words are coming out of my fingers. Like I'm a genius, you know, and I was, it's because I was translating, you know, Proust or something, yes, you know, that's, yes. that's like, so- how am I thinking of all this? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So I, uh, I'm Hopkins. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. Um, so, so w- yeah, what we're going to hear now, and remember, there, there'll be a link for, for people who want to look as Maya reads, um, but we're, we're going to hear now Maya Popa read the poem that she's chosen for today's discussion. Go ahead, Maya. Spring and fall to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over golden groves unleaving? Leaves like the things of man, you, with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh. The worlds of wanwood leaf meal lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now, no matter child, the name. Sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghost guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Maya. Those last two lines, um, you know, I don't want to talk about them yet. I want to save them for for um for the end of our discussion but um my god those are those are two you know memorable lines of poetry so here here's a first question for you why is the poem called spring and fall (laughs) i mean it's a poem i mean sorry so i'll ask i'll ask the kind of naive question here it seems to be a poem about fall you know yeah I think, um, it, yeah. and, and, it, and sorry, and, and just one more thing, like it, you know, it's also true. I mean, it happens to be true. Like we're, we happen to be having this conversation just as we're about to turn into spring. Um, and I can't remember, I, I'm not good enough at thinking of the calendar in my mind when this episode, oh, you know, I think in fact, this episode may post on the equinox. Um, oh, fantastic. yeah, which is amazing. That's amazing. But the poem seems not to be about in any, in you know, it's, it's, um, so, so those first two lines, Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Yes. Um, seem to be about, um, you know, addressed to a girl who may or may not be, um, upset about her favorite tree or something like that. Golden Grove is a kind of what invented name for a sort of a tree, you know? So maybe we're meant to imagine a certain kind of tree with golden leaves. Um, it, yeah. So where, you know, why spring and fall? It's such a good question. I think it plays into the amazing relationship that Hopkins has to simplicity and complexity and to a larger religious paradigm that's always beating underneath his work. So I think one first mm. thing to note is that he was deeply influenced by Ignatian spirituality. And in the Ignatian spiritual exercises, there's this sense of Christ being in nature. The patterns of nature are somehow Christed, right? They are muscular with Mm. the essence of Christ. And, you know, to answer now more directly, I think the child is the spring here, figuratively, the beginning. I see. And fall being, you know, what commences a decline. One season begins life, the other commences a decline. So from the title, we already have this sort of spiritual tension, I think. And then, of course, a priest can't include the word fall and not have it sort of be a nod sure. to fall um, and of, of Adam and Eve. But it's interesting, too, that the poem is dedicated to a child because so many of his poems are dedicated to God. And I think, again, right. that's part of the way he reconciles himself to, to writing in the first place. Um, Wreck of the Deutschland, which is this sort of mm-hmm. magnum opus, right. dedicated to to nuns who had drowned, um, but is still for the glory of God. So I think in some ways addressing the poem to a child, and the word spring actually appears in the poem, right? Sorrow's yeah. springs are the same, allows the poem 
to address an existential question that intrinsically has religious stakes behind it. Okay. And so just to like push a little harder on that Mm -hmm. for for the moment, Mm -hmm. the religious stakes here have to do with the fact of the poem's addressee being a child because for Hopkins, what... Mm -hmm. Maybe for the, I, way, for the way Hopkins experienced religion, the child is a kind of heavily um, that's, significant I that's one way figure. to read it. But more, I meant more sort of the arc of human life from, from birth to death. So what right. she's sort of dramatizing in the poem is her existential awakening, right? Mm-hmm. Is that she sort of sees the patterns of nature that are continuous and will go on and existed before she's there and, and will continue on after she's there and her grief will be tied into that. And there's a sense that, again, from the fall onwards, we experience this grief that's owed to us, right? Um, mm. Is not redeemed. We're not in the garden anymore. We don't live forever anymore. Um, you know, right. sort of like a post-lapsarian uh coming to terms with a post-Lapsarian world. So I, I think I might read it that mm. way. But again, I see the spring as being so much her, right? In some ways, she is that early stage of life where we don't know death. And then the rest yeah. of life is knowing death. Most of our life is knowing death. Um, well, it very, seems, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I was going to say it's just a very, it's sort of a brief and hollow period that we don't, yeah. Right. Um, it seems like she's being, you know, the sort of narrative arc of the poem or something is that at the, from the beginning of the poem, she's being confronted with the death of something outside of her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the, but the poet has another message for her, um, yes. by, by, by the poems and, um, which, uh, yeah, so I can see how that, um, how the, the reading that you've just been intimating, um, for us, um, sort of maps itself onto that um, plot or arc or whatever, such mm-hmm. as it is. Um, okay, so so title, good. So she's the spring in a way. Now, now subtitle or dedication <laughs> to a to a young child. So we're not we're really not going to go phrase by phrase necessarily, but no. So to a young child. So you know, I guess I can imagine at least two. I I want to say, but maybe I'm sort of splitting hairs here that there are two slightly different ways of understanding what to a young child is doing. So, you know, in the first, maybe it's sort of like a stage direction or Mm -hmm. something, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are to imagine the poem as being spoken to a young child. And Mm -hmm. that makes Mm -hmm. sense with the first Mm -hmm. word of the poem, which sort of addresses her Margaret. Um, but, you know, maybe like we've also referred to that as a dedication, mm-hmm. which seems like a slightly different gesture to me. Yeah. Um, right. So um, I don't know. I guess this take this as an invitation to think in any way that you want to about about the effect of putting those words under the title to a young child or um, or or if you prefer just more generally thinking about um, when a not all poems have, most poems don't have, um, named speakers, certain, uh, sorry, not speakers, um, addressees, certain poems do, you know, love poems often do, right? Um, so that, you know, uh, we go back all the way to the first poem we I did in this um, series with Brian Glavy when we read um, Having a Coke With You, Frank O'Hara's Having a Coke With You. So that's a, that's a, that's a poem that's like, O'Hara is on the one hand addressing his lover, Vincent Warren, but he's doing it as a poem so that that is in a way a kind of like conceit. And the understanding is that the address to the one person in particular will be overheard by readers in general. Um, At least as I understand it, there isn't an actual Margaret here. It's kind of a fictional creation, right? So I don't know, what is the idea of like addressing the poem to the child to be overheard by readers who are presumably mostly not themselves children? Um, yeah, what what's that doing for you, Maya? It's the first time I've ever stopped to think deeply about it, I'll be honest. I almost felt like it was there so that 
one goes in knowing that Margaret is a child rather than waiting I for see. now no child now no matter child the name you know um, right. but but I think you ask to find questions or to propose to sort of find readings of it and and I'll certainly think more about it um, mm-hmm. but I guess you're right we wouldn't know that she was a child necessarily until you, we it might be implied thing, yeah. but there is something about the tone of it that is sweetened even in the reader's own ear by knowing right. that you're a child um, right. even if it's not a, a poem a sing-songy poem for a child though it does have yeah. some degree of that kind of cadence to it that it plays yeah. off of in its um you know in the depth of its existential question. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's in these rhyming couplets mostly, although at one point we get a triplet, which is interesting, but, um, it's it, just take that first couplet as a way maybe to move into the poem. Now, um, Margaret, are you grieving over golden grove unleaving mm-hmm. unleaving is like a weird invention. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hawkins. I mean, he yeah. just unleaving one wood leaf meal. It does several mm-hmm. things there. It rhymes with grieving. It provides mm-hmm. an image for quote loss of leaves. Right. <laughs> Something is unleaving. Yeah. Uh, it also suggests the homonym of to leave. So the mm. leaves are leaving. Um, yeah. It does so, so much. And then you get that kind of fun Anglo-Saxony just rhyme of pure repetition leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for can you (laughs) it's just interesting that it starts with two questions right it's almost like it's putting up its figurative it's putting up the sort of questions it will explore substantiate by the rest of the by the end right which is sort of interesting I guess so. Yeah. And I, and I guess, yeah, it is interesting that these are in some very real way, rhetorical questions because Margaret can't answer (laughs) in the poem. Right. Um, And it seems like, you know, he follows his questions with this, ah, but I want to pause over the thing you, the, the, the work you were doing with that word unleaving just a moment longer, because on the one hand, yeah, it is this like nonce construction that, you know what it means. It means, okay, when a tree loses its leaves, it's unleaving. But what's funny is the homonym, I think, that you were referring to, or the, yeah, um, this other sense in which you might want take the word, mm-hmm. sounds in a way almost paradoxically yeah. opposed yeah. to that meaning, right? So that you True. think, yes. And, and it's done, it's, it's sort of the, f- the pun of the word leave that does it, you know, I'm thinking of the expression, you know, make like a tree and leave. Yeah. You know? um, uh-huh. yeah. Uh, um, um, but right. Because sorry, just, just to spell it out. And then I want to hear you think yes, about it. Yes. Unleaving. If you weren't talking about a tree, but you were talking about, you know, you might think of that as like someone not departing, not leaving. Yeah. But what did, but, but what's actually happening is she's crying as though she were being abandoned by something, mm-hmm. maybe, right? As though she were being left. Mm-hmm. Um, but but calling it unleaving both sort of illustrates that and points in this totally opposite direction. I don't know. Well, I think you're. it's so true. And then again, being that it's Hopkins, we sort of know that there has to be a reason for it. And I think part of it is that in reality, the tree is going nowhere. It's still alive. It's dormant. It's a season, right? It's not, it's not leaving. And on Uh the other hand, she's the one who's going to leave. I mean, I hate that we keep (laughs) intimating the last two lines. That's okay. You existed before her and that tree will exist when she's gone, you know, in some ways, these are the spiritual exercises of nature. They are continuous and and we have our quote-unquote seasons too but we don't um you know we feel in much more emotionally taxing ways about our seasons than nature seems to feel which nature does not seem to worry about its ebbs and flows and we are in a state of constant neurosis about you know (laughs) speak for yourself (laughs) (laughs) very relaxed i'm sure (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, it, it, again, right. I think it's sort of already suggesting what what's going to happen, and and he does that in in steps in this poem. Um, mm-hmm. As do well. you want to talk about more of those steps for us? Well, it, it would. Can I move on to the next few lines? As of course works? you can. Yeah, so, this um, is your conversation. This now. is my conversation. Okay, I feel empowered. 
Um, you know, I think one thing I'll say is that, so he's talking about nature's yearly departure and that unleaving um, that parallels and in fact con- contrasts man's inevitable end that just is an end. You don't die and then come back. As far as we know, or do you? I don't know. You I might. mean, maybe you know very well, and and I and a, a conversation for a different podcast. But it, at least in in oh, no. the Hopkins version, um, it, it feels like it, the end is rather the end. Um, Sorry, the only reason I said that was because because of what you had said about his religion earlier, and yeah. I don't know how that alters or changes. When I mean, yes, I think that when I die, I that's it. Yes, but a priest might think differently. No. Yes. Well, you know. It, in traditional Christian ideology, probably, you know, paradise, heaven, purgatory, that, that right. paradigm is sure. there. In Judaism, it's not. Um, yeah. and, and then, you know, but, but, but the reincarnational aspect, I'm not sure, but in any, okay. in any case, I think, yeah, yeah. Go um, ahead. leaves like the things of man, you with your fresh thoughts care for, can you? So it's interesting that the child's thoughts are fresh. They're fleetingly fresh because at some point, they're going to be tarnished by age and experience and exposure to the world. And then right. she won't mourn them. She won't. Right. So, ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh. The worlds of Wanwood leaf meal lie. So yeah. worlds of Wanwood leaf meal. And this is just delightful. I mean, there's something so textural and kind of kinesthetic about the way Hopkins uses words. And it's almost like he's taking the charge of the Gospel of John that says world as word, you know. Yeah. It is that. I mean, he is coining terms left, right, and center. Wanwood leaf meal lie. And so she will be presumably amidst an entire forest entire world of one wood leaf meal right you think this one tree losing its leaves is bad right even spare a sigh for it by the time she's an adult she'll be so used to it um her heart will no longer have the kind of fresh emotional response to this as it would as an adult would right adults lose that um in some ways sympathetic urgency or empathy for the natural world so He's acknowledging mm-hmm. that, um, that in fact, that tarnishing comes in, in how she will emotionally react to the world and to the damage. Right. And this, this really, for me, cinches the thing you were saying um, earlier in this conversation about the spring in the poem being her mm-hmm. or her as a child, um, because what that sort of intimates is her own seasons turning but what you know, the other thing I wanted to say when you were talking about um, the trees, the the tree um, likely outliving Margaret um, Golden Grove, um, is is that you know what she, the error she's making is in thinking that its annual cycle is a life cycle, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. instead, as you refer to, is not it's not death, it's dormancy. Yes, right? yes, yes. Um, but for her, it seems like the poem is suggesting humans don't age in that way. They don't go. It it seems like she's going to have one of each season. Yes. You know? Yes. She's got, she's in her spring right now. Yes. She's going to get one of them. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, um, and by the time, um, you know, she makes her way through her summer, which I don't know what that would be, but like young adults, you know, or whatever yeah, the prime of her life, adults, you know, yeah. you know, um, autumn is now middle age or something. Yeah. And, you know, winter, yeah. right. By the time she gets there, it's not, it's not going to come around again for her yeah. at least. Right. Yeah. Yes, and, and, and her mind will never be restored to that original feeling, let's say for the world. Right. right? And I think that's part of what he's grieving in this, right? Ah, which is such a kind of spoken yeah. affect of the poem. And it's class, again, it's performative. Uh, but so is even having things like Wanwood, Leaf Meal, and all of the kind of sonic play. He's really interested in the materiality of language. And you feel that so keenly as you read. So it's not just about telling this kind of fabulish little 
tale of Margaret and the tree, right? Um, yeah. So much about the pleasure of the language. And that way it's sort of amazing because it is excessive. I mean, he is someone who mm. is so excessive in the sound patterning. Um, yeah. but, the, but, the, but there's also a kind of restraint. I think your point about the control is sort of interesting there. But, um, and, and, and again, maybe to another way of thinking about that is the kind of meditative aspect of the poem and the momentum building aspect of the poem. The sound kind of builds a, a right. sense of momentum, but line by line, it's thinking. It's a poem thinking about thinking, right. thinking about um, experience and reaction. So, mm. um, yeah, and, it's, and, it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was just going to say that it's a poem that I don't know that I, I don't know that I can what I can point to that will um you know warrant the claim that I'm about to make but um it's a poem that seems to like it's it's a poem that's overfull mm-hmm. in a way mm-hmm. right that's sort of insisting mm-hmm. um so I'm hearing it sort of in the way that it rhymes in the kind of fullness of these rhymes um in a way, you know, and I, and I'm trying, what I'm trying, what I'm thinking about, you know, sort of um, inspired by your way of talking about the poem, Maya, is, you know, the, the, the poet is delivering a message here. Mm-hmm. He, it's sort of, it's a, um, it's a didactic poem in a way. Right. Um, and that might sound like, denigration because we're not meant to like didacticism in poetry, but I love this poem. And I think it's a poem that, you know, it has the, you know, the rhetorical pose of a, of a teacher speaking. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It also seems funny to me now that I, you know, I named dates at the beginning of the conversation. The poet sounds older than in his mid thirties to me, (laughs) you know, he sounds sort of world weary and wise or something. Yet it's so funny to think that among the Victorians, he fit in not at all. Right. Like, so this is to you so strange actually for his period, but keep going. Yeah. Sorry. So the thing, so, so, you know, one could at great sort of violence to the poem paraphrase its wisdom, (laughs) right? Um, and what I'm wondering is if in its sort of rhetorical manner, in the kind of fullness and richness of its treatment of language, it's actually doing something um, sort of in a countervailing spirit to the to the sort of directness of the I mean, it, so to put it simply, you know, this girl is crying because the tree is losing its leaves and the poet is saying, ah, you know, um, you don't, you know, it's don't worry about the tree, worry about yourself. Right. Um, you know, um, but, but somehow in the, in the, the language of the poem itself, it's like the poet is also is more like Margaret than he cares to admit, or is like wanting to sort of preserve and, You know, I think of that Keats, um, you know, that line from the the, the letter that Keats wrote um, to Shelley, where he tells him to load every rift with ore. Yes. Yeah, so good. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's also a funny kind of like, you know, Keats giving advice to Shelley seems yeah. like a, a, it's a, it was a funny thing for him to have done. But that advice to load every rift with ore, Hopkins seems like to have taken that advice in this poem. He's loading every rift with ore, like he's filling it all in. and. Um, you know that seems not not to um to put a kind of ironic distance between him and and the addressee of the poem but to sort of be speaking in her spirit somehow i like that speaking in her spirit yeah i mean again it's it's strange and i think didactic is right it's almost like there's this epistemological conversation and a kind of religious conversation all happening in the poem but it's it is that sonic dilation, the string of vowels, the one yeah. leaf meal, the line that's so again, almost um, you know, he's creating a palette, a vowel palette, and that creates connective tissue in the poem and that makes it so much more than what it what it might right. what it might have been, which is as you say, this kind of like little moral lesson. Um, vignette right rather than that it it, because of all this stuff that is so much a signature of Hopkins's style it is pulsing with life I mean I think um he is again I think 
poets who really like him return to him because there's something, there's something forceful in yeah. the poems that feels so much on the side of yeah. life, even in something like the terrible songs, even in the poems he wrote in the midst of, of severe depressive episodes, right. there's right. something so for life in them. Um, right. Yeah. Um, since we've, since we've, I, I love what you say about the, the idea of a palette or a, a, something like a sonic palette. Um, mm-hmm. And um, we've talked a bit about rhyme already. So it's a poem that's in rhyming couplets, as I said, except that there's a triplet in it. So there's, um, there's, you know, in the middle roughly or exactly of the poem, mm-hmm. we get um, rather than a rhyming two lines that rhyme, a rhyming couplet, we get three lines in a row that rhyme, sigh, lie, why. Um, it strikes me that were, were that not the case, were the poem just in couplets, the poem would be sonnet length. Mm-hmm. It would be. Um, it's just one line per turn. Yeah. So, of a sonnet. Yeah. Right. So, so there must be something um, significant about the moment where yes. we move from couplet to triplet yes. and why it happens there. You know, sonnets often have. Um, you know, not the sonnet doesn't just have fourteen lines, right? A sonnet often has a kind of turn in it. You know, the volta yes. in the um, Italian tradition. Um, or a rhyming couplet at the end of an Elizabethan sonnet that it's another kind of turn. So is is that triplet doing sort of Volta-like work? Or why? Yeah, yeah, what do you I, do with the triplet, Maya? I think absolutely that the line, and yet you will weep and know why, it's such a well-executed moment of clarity, right? We've had all these beautiful images that preceded it. It's a compressed declarative, which I think also matters. It draws our attention back in. Um, mm. So I think, and it's sort of, it reads as the only unstopped line as well. So I, yeah. I do believe it's functioning as a Volta would there actually. Um, and it's, it's so interesting, even what it's saying is kind of spooky if, <laughs> on first read. Yeah. And you will weep and know why. So, so in some ways, he's arguing she's weeping and thinks she knows why she's weeping, but she doesn't really know why she's weeping. And by the time you're weeping again, you will know why you're weeping. Oh, that's so wonderful. Which is... So when you cry as a child because, well, I don't know, in this case, the leaves are falling from your favorite tree, but we can think of a child crying because some cute animal died in a movie or whatever it is, whatever sort of like, you know what I mean though, kind of familiarized version of experience of death that a child encounters. Yes. Yes. That is crying without knowing why you're crying. It's almost, you think, you know, but you don't. Iceberg is what you're really experiencing here. You know, it's a symbol of the fall that you're experiencing. It's not, you don't even know you're responding to the symbol, not to the greater underlying message. You know, that's sort of what he's intimating is that by, and and he's also saying again, by the time that you're older, none of this will affect you. None of this perceived loss will hurt you, but you will still be weeping. <laughs> and it's, and you're going to know why you're weeping in a way that it won't be over a tree. It'll be, in, yes, he's almost mm-hmm. almost as though the premise of the poem is that he's correctly guessed what upset her, and mm-hmm. and has sort of explained now to her what what what's actually beneath this, um, because again, it's it's the sense of you know it's why children cry when their parents leave the room; they think they're never going to come back, right? They don't have mm-hmm. a sense yet of of how the cyclical nature of loss, and at some point we become so accustomed with loss that crying feels unnecessary or superfluous um Mm -hmm. but she's not there yet you know she hasn't mastered the art as bishop might say (laughs) not yet not yet um and she will and maybe it's the case that you know i said i said earlier that um a human life doesn't have um, seasons in the same way that a tree mm-hmm. does because mm-hmm. it has them once, let's say. Mm-hmm. But a poem isn't a human life. And, mm-hmm. a, and a poem, this poem does have a kind of recurring rhythm, mm-hmm. you know, that that the rhyme produces in a way, right? So like, um, that's not just one turn around the globe, that's, uh, or around the sun, that's, you know, many, you know, seven or something. Um so he's just gotten done telling her that when she's older, she's not going to care so much about the trees losing their leaves, but she will 
but she will weep and know why. So she will have internalized the source of her own grief and it won't be what she thought it was. It won't, it won't be that the golden leaves have fallen. Um, and, and again, the next four lines, now no matter child, the name, sorrow springs are the same, is sort of, um, again, we get that lovely echo to the title of spring and fall with the springs there. Um, and the lovely alliteration, heart heard, ghost guest in the next um, line. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of, again, it's saying that um, all pain, all grief shares one original source, right? It's all an iteration of the same fact of mortality. It's all coming from the same place. Yeah. Um, so all loss is is coming from the same, again, it shares the same spring. So, so even though he has been at pain, he, the poet, has been at pains to distinguish the kind of um, trivial tears over the tree from the the tears whose source he doesn't actually identify, but we can all guess at the kind of thing that would prompt it, like a death of a loved one, mm-hmm. something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or and then ultimately, of course, her own death, yes, um, and her own mortality. Um, after he's made that distinction, he's sort of dismissing his own distinction. All all, exactly. all sorrow yeah. springs are the same. Mm-hmm. What what do you make of the fact that I mean, you you alluded to this way back earlier when I asked you about the poem's title, but now we've gotten to the moment that the, the of the word spring appearing in the poem here, it's doing so in a totally different linguistic register from the seasonal one. I think mm-hmm. right. Totally. Yeah. Um, these are springs in the sense of like, um, you know, like. Um, origins right like a Mm -hmm. the like a stream or something right the place sorrow streams forth from um but yeah i don't know is that um do you have any thoughts about the words appearance here because you know i think again he's a poet who so paints with language and i think that's really very much a part of his sort of ars poetica so even having that line i can't not think that there's emphasis on the alliteration. So the sorrow springs and same there mm-hmm. are working so beautifully together um, and, and creating kind of a synesthetic link between feeling and hearing, right? Mm. Um, the, the, the sound sense of the line. So I, I do think it's a nod to the title and also that he's thinking of oh, spring is exactly what he needs. I mean, I guess you could go sorrow sources are the same. Sorrow springs sources would be two beats springs is mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of these lines are about eight, eight or seven beats per line. They're not mm. following a complete pattern. Um, the syllables, but for syllables, you know, right, yeah, right, 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 for exactly. accents or something. Exactly. Yeah. Syllables. So it's, um, you know, I, I see it as as part of that. And springs feels just like the mot juste to me. Like it feels exactly yeah. like what he means, right? Yeah. Um, it, it still feels to me also like a, a reference to Eden, like the rivers of Eden mm-hmm. or something. I mean, there, it, uh, yeah. and that That's might nice. be, you know, I feel that too when nor mouth had no nor mind expressed what heart heard of ghost guest. Um, you know, I think the ghost is such an important part of the tripartite. There's a sense here that I don't think we're over reading into it whenever we mm-hmm. see kind of um, religious illusions that are plausible oh. with Hopkins. I think they're there, you know? Yeah, um, surely not. Surely not over reading um, to, to hear something about the Holy ghost there, but, yeah. but ghost might just mean what in a simple, like um, soul or spirit. Uh, yes. Or what the yeah. heart heard and the ghost guest. Um, yeah. And that's a weirdly um, inverted sentence, which maybe we should just try to yeah. <laughs> unstring f- first of all. So nor mouth had, Yes. No nor mind expressed. So I think what he's saying, though he's saying it obviously in a much more interesting way than what I'm about to say, but a, mm-hmm. a paraphrase can be useful even if you want to dismiss it afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody has ever said or thought the thing that somehow in your feeling or your soul you've understood. That, In other words, like there are things that we get without having the words for. Exactly. And I think it's so important that it's heart hears rather than heart feels, right? right. I think it's oh, say more about that. Is the, the alliteration, but I yeah. don't think he's just randomly landed there. I think it's it's what you're saying. It's it's something that one almost needs to be quiet to hear in the heart, mm. to know what this is, right? 
Um, and the ghost guest, I mean, again, the ghost is almost like a flicker of a former life somehow. It's not quite uh-huh. there. Um, and, and again, this is all, oh, it is so nice. all about unanswerability, right? In some ways, it's the, the mis- there's something deeply mysterious too about this arc. So that while it seems to at sort of end on a place of he is telling her what she will feel and he is telling her that this is the grief that we all have, there are still always questions about death, right? There are questions about the afterlife. This is never, this isn't quite, it's never quite done, right? Um, and uh-huh. so I think that's part of the kind of questing aspect of the poem. Yeah. Questing is a really nice word for it. Um Ghost guest. Um, I guess there's something about the um, the kind of the metaphorical sense in which a guess is like a flicker of thought, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, yes. that that draws out through force of that alliteration, um, the flickering nature of the ghost as a kind of version of the self or the soul or something like that. That's um, yeah, I had not. I had not thought of that until you um, until you suggested that. I that's had thought of it either. Okay, good. Yeah, that's the best kind of thought to have, right? right. Um, yeah. Okay. So now we're at the end. It is the it is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. Um. It it is the blight man was born for. Um. He's upending a, a more conventional thought that a person might have had or or um talk to us about the that final couplet maya i mean you know it's that it's the great insight and it's in some ways the construction of it's so interesting in that it begins each line begins it is it is, it is and ends in four so there's a very kind of weird insistence to it and conclusionary aspect to it. Like it really feels like it's tying itself up. Mm-hmm. Um, and in essence, he recognizes what she's been mourning this whole time where he's suggesting to her um, that what she's been mourning this whole time is her own mortality is the sense that she cannot stay and enjoy. And of course this is perhaps outside the realm of what, what he's actually saying in the poem, but she must have enjoyed the golden grove that is now unleaving. So you cannot stick around and enjoy all of it. Pleasure has to fade. You have to die. In every minor loss you mourn, you are mourning your eventual end. Because mm. otherwise there'd be infinite time to continue gaining and losing, right? Yeah. It's but not that me- you, you can't stick around and enjoy all of it. You can't stick around and enjoy any of it. <laughs> you know? yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm so interested in the force. Um, how should I put this? The work that's done in the last line by using her name in that way, oh, rather than saying, you know, uh, so a, the the worst version of the same thought would be, it is yourself you mourn yeah. for, right? It is Margaret you mourn for somehow makes well, now in the same line, we have a you and a Margaret, which mm-hmm. theoretically are the same, mm-hmm. refer to the same entity, but sound very different. It's like the you has been dislocated somehow mm-hmm. from this Margaret, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a performance, again. It, it, this is yeah. part of what I feel so much that this poem is an experience. And when you reach that final line, um, you know, because this the insight might otherwise be be performed in a very kind of trite manner. I mean, I don't want anyone lecturing me on why I'm grieving and the fact that every mm-hmm. grief is my, but I'd be quite irritated. In fact, if someone, right. Wrote, I was going to say, it's a sort of an yeah, irritating thing that the poem is doing. Right. Right. Yeah. And so there's somehow though, that her, the appearance of her name again, um, sort of cements the wisdom that is actually the beating heart of this. I mean, I don't get the sense that this is someone being didactic for the sake of being didactic, but rather that this mm-hmm. is a lesson they're struggling with themselves. Um, that this is something that is, is inherently beautiful. Even the grief is beautiful and that it is the blight that man was born for is not quite de- as depressing as it might be. It is sort of, this is the blight. This is the blight that you are born for. This is 
it is Margaret you're mourning for. I mean, it's really the sense that it's okay. This is what it was. This is it. This mm-hmm. is what it's meant. Everything is doing what it's meant to do. <laughs> in mm-hmm. a weird way, you know. Um, yeah. And and there's something haunting about the inclusion of the name. If it were just about to, delivering a lesson, it would be it is yourself you mourn for, and then that would implicate every reader. Right. But there's something more impactful about having it go back to Margaret, right? Yeah, where it began. Um, the first word of the poem, right? Um, I looked up the name. It means pearl in, mm-hmm. in the the in the Bible or in in, the, in its origins. The name Margaret in various linguistic traditions, I think, means something like pearl. Um, which I don't know if Hopkins would have was likely to have cared about that uh, or thought about it. Maybe well, it's, it's you know. Interesting that um, one of the most sort of interesting re- medieval text is the Pearl poem that's written yeah. by Gawain, the same Gawain yeah. uh, and the Green Knight writer. And that is a, a deeply religious text about, um, you know, a man who loses his daughter Pearl um, right. and goes sort of like into this weird afterlife. And she's like a beautiful adolescent woman now. She's not a child yeah. anymore. And she's basically telling her dad to stop mourning her because. Well, so that sounds absolutely apt. She's yeah. In the, she's in the, uh, she's with Christ now. She's like one of Christ's ladies, you know, like in the, uh-huh. like stop mourning. It's not good. Um, and that's a horrible summary of the Pearl poem. It's an amazing poem. Sure. Um, but. Uh, it's a useful it summary. Yeah. <laughs> it used to occur to me, but in any case, I think probably that's a stretch. But I didn't know that Margaret was Pearl in the. I don't think that's a stretch. I think that must be exactly right. Um, <laughs> e- yeah. And um, well, you know, the rhyme on born, you know, born and mourn. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, is that a rhyme? Yeah. I mean, come right. on, born and mourn. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I guess I wonder also, and this is this now probably is pushing things too far in the name, Margaret, you get some of the sounds of Gerard Manley Hopkins name, right? The G's and the M's and the R's. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Um Put I mean, that, I'll put, put that up there. Yeah, I'm going to put that in the show notes. I'll put a whole theory on it. <laughs> I was just going to say with the born born thing, I think Christopher Ricks has this amazing um, line about m- metaphor or rhyme being a form of metaphor because mm-hmm. it's a finding and a reminding. And in some ways it's, yeah. a, it's a sonic metaphor, which sure. I think is so interesting. Um, yeah. And so the born born thing is, is kind of tied into that. But by all means, yeah. continue with with your um, theory. No, no, no. That you heard it. That was it. You're just in a conspiracy theory. Okay, fine. Well, no. I mean, just sorry. Just that you know. So sorry. So the theory would go something like, yes, little girl, you're crying over the tree. What you're really crying over is yourself. Yes. But then stand stand one level back from that, and what it is is, you know, poet, you're not addressing margaret you're addressing yourself yes right yes 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 so just just as she is looking at the tree but but from from the poet's point of view actually um not thinking about that's not the right word but um um guessing Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. something about herself he the poet only seems to be addressing Margaret. Margaret for, is like the tree for him. Yes. Right. And yes. what he's yes. actually mourning for is Gerard Manley Hopkins or yes. something like that. Yes. You know? Which is That's possibly the, the case. You know, I, I'm not, I, I, I've not yeah. researched to know whether this was to a real child or not. It might be sort of the vehicle. Oh, I th- yeah. yeah. I think he says, I think I, I saw it just in the, I mean, it's not something I know, except that it's, I, it was in the notes of my yes. edition that there's a letter in which he says it's an invented situation. Yes. Yeah, now, who knows okay. if that's yeah. um, to be trusted or not? Um, all right. Well, this was um, this was such a, a beautiful conversation, um, Maya, and I want to thank you for it. I, I think um, I think maybe we should hear the poem one more time as a way out. Do you want to read it again? Would you like to read it? Well, I, of course, I would like to read it, but well, you're you're I, the guest. I, I want to share the bounty on this so <laughs> by all means, and thank and just to say again, thank you so much for having me on. I enjoyed this tremendously. Oh, of course, 
Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. Okay. Spring and fall to a young child. Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves, like the things of man, you, with your fresh thoughts, care for, can you? Ah, as the heart grows older, it will come to such sights colder by and by, nor spare a sigh, though worlds of wanwood leave me a lie. And yet you will weep and know why. Now no matter, child, the name, sorrow's springs are the same. Nor mouth had, no nor mind expressed what heart heard of, ghosts guessed. It is the blight man was born for. It is Margaret you mourn for. I love that poem. I love that poem. I, um, and I love talking to you. Um, listeners, thank you for um, listening. Thank you for experiencing this poem with us. Um, can't wait to um, share more of these conversations. We'll have more coming up um, soon. Um, I wish everyone a happy spring. Um, my my Persian friends and family out there, a happy Nowruz. And... Um, a new day for all of us. Thanks, Maya. Thank you so much.